0: Welcome to a bonus episode of the Women's Health Cast, produced by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm your host, Jackie Askins. In this podcast, we learn about the latest women's health issues and innovations, mostly from experts at UW-Madison. But occasionally, I have the great pleasure of sitting down with leaders in academic medicine from across the country to learn more about what women's health work looks like for them. In this episode, I talked with Paula Gehrig about the intersection of women's health and obesity. Dr. Gehrig is a professor and director of the Gynecologic Oncology Division at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We discussed how obesity can increase the risk for more than a dozen types of cancer, why obesity is a growing issue around the world, and how physicians and medical professionals can approach this issue with their patients. So we're joined today by Dr. Paula Gehrig from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's a professor there. Um, I am very excited to talk to you a little bit about sort of the intersection of obesity and women's health. But uh, before we get started on that, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, about your role at UNC. What do you do there?
1: Um, So, I'm a full-time GYN oncologist, have a full-time practice. Um, I'm also the the division head at UNC, and we have a fairly large division. I have 10 physician faculty, six fellows, five nurse clinicians, so we're a pretty big group. We cover four different campuses, um, so we do put a lot of road time in as well, but that way I think we deliver care to the women locally in their community setting, which is important to them. I also run the outpatient and the inpatient service, uh, so it's allowed me to have nice continuity with the cancer patients on the outpatient setting and then the inpatient setting. So we kind of can give them a, a continuous process in terms of education. The nursing staff go back and forth. It's actually a very nice setup for the patients. It makes them very comfortable.
0: That's really good. Why did you want to pursue GYN oncology as a career?
1: Yeah, that was not the plan. Um, Though you know, it's funny, sometimes your best friends when you're little know exactly what you're gonna do. I always knew I was gonna be a doctor. I thought I was gonna be an orthopedic surgeon. And my best friend, who's still my best friend in third grade, told me I'd be a gynecologist. I don't think either one of us really knew what that even meant. Um, And I'm like, oh my God, that's so gross, never. But so happens. Um, I worked with orthopedic surgeons. I you know, shadowed them in high school, and that's what I was going to be. And then I got to medical school, and I was on a rotation for GYN oncology. A small percentage of us did that. And that was, that was my moment. Um, the one faculty member, we had done this great case together during the day. And I was like, oh my gosh, a gynecologist is doing all this bowel surgery and everything. And then we went into a patient's room. He sat on the edge of the bed. He held her hand. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I hadn't seen a physician do that. And this was midway through my third year of medical school. So I'd been on several rotations already. And I hadn't seen someone sit on the edge of the bed with a patient before. And then um, he was so nice and sweet and kind. And then we walk out of the room, and he completely destroyed us on the coagulation pathway. He grilled us. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he is a surgeon. He knows science. He's smart. He was great with his patient, and I'm not sure I knew what G1 Oncology was, but I knew I wanted to grow up and be like him. Um, and so then as I started OB-GYN, I realized it wasn't just I wanted to be like him, I wanted to do what he did. And that's how I got here. Not planned.
0: Um, So you just presented a special lecture to our department, the UW Department of OBGYN on obesity and women's health, uh, which I found very fascinating. It was a great treat to sit in and uh, learn a little bit about it. Um, Can you just tell me kind of a summary? What did you cover
1: in the talk? Well, thank you for your kind words about my talk. Um, we kind of we covered a lot. You know, I've, I've given this talk before to a variety of different audiences. Sometimes it's much more cancer-focused, but for a department, I really wanted to be inclusive of all the members, not just the oncologists. So we talked about the impact of obesity in our general population, adults and children. The impact, of course, had to bring in a little cancer, the impact of obesity on, on cancer, um, not just with regards to the incidence of cancer. Clearly, obesity increases the risk of 13 different cancers. Um, two of the most prominent are, are endometrial, as well as postmenopausal breast cancer. So for anybody who's a practicing OBGYN, that's going to touch a lot of our patients. Um, and then, you know, the debate about how it impacts cancer outcome. We also talked a little bit about weight loss and can that mitigate the risks of um, developing cancer, while not just decreasing all-cause mortality, and that's been shown time and time again, particularly with bariatric surgery, but it does appear to be a significant, um, lead to a significant improvement in endometrial cancer risks in a large study. So, you know, we talked a little bit about that and then tried to to give a couple vignettes that might help incorporate some of the stuff we talked about into people's practice, because I think you hear a lot of good talks sometimes, but you don't really know how to take it home. Um, And so I think putting in a couple clinical vignettes might be helpful. So we did that. So the title of your
0: talk was that obesity is a growing problem. Can you tell me about some trends, sort of nationwide, what we're seeing um, in
1: obesity? So, you know, I think there's we're seeing trends, unfortunately, both in our children and in our adults. So um, one in three children now are overweight or obese. That's doubled from a generation ago. Um, And unfortunately, we know that obese children become obese adults. Um, Now, at what point that intersection affects cancer, we don't really know. Um, Is it a lifetime cumulative effect? Or is it a one shot? If you're obese at this point, this is what your risk is. But in addition to cancer, I mean, the heart disease, the diabetes, Arthritis. You know, young kids who can't run, can't play. Um, kids spend seven amount seven hours a day in front of a screen, whether it's a computer or, or a TV or a laptop or whatever it is. So kids just aren't moving. So, at what point is the obesity because of the food choices? You know, we know that fast food is addictive to kids. You know, a happy meal. I'm not picking on any particular company, but those things attract children and then they're not moving. So whereas those foods have always been there, kids were running and playing, so you could offset it. Now they're not running and playing. They're playing virtually. Um, So we talked a little bit about that, and, and how that's such a, a big issue um, in this country, and then overall, if you look at the obese population, I mean, over a third of the U.S. population is obese. If you include overweight, it's over forty percent, um, and you know it, it is a public health emergency. Um, if you the the cost to the U.S. healthcare system is two hundred billion. It's obesity costs the healthcare system in the U.S. more than cancer care does. Um, And I don't think that's what people recognize. And then if you include all of the lost productivity, so people being out of work because of, you know, their knee surgery or their hip surgery or not feeling well from their diabetes or their hypertension, the heart disease, when you include the bigger social costs from time off of work, I think that just balloons. I don't have a number for that. I'm sure there is one. But it is, it is a, a, a very large issue for our population, and I only see it getting worse. I don't see any improvement. You know, they have projections out to 2030, um, and it's projected that 50% of the population will be overweight or obese by 2030. Um, you know, that's 10 years from now. Right. Yeah, we're there. So you just mentioned
0: um, approximately 40% of Americans right now are overweight or obese. And I know that stat is definitely true in Wisconsin. About 40% of Wisconsin adults are uh, classified as
1: overweight or obese. Uh, what does it look like in North Carolina? It's about the same. Um, you know, I think a couple slides I showed today show a lot of similarities between Wisconsin and North Carolina. Um so about 40% of the populations in both states are overweight or obese. Um, only about 30% of the population in both of the states would accurately describe their weight. So I think the barrier to folks recognizing that they're overweight or obese are similar. And of course, you know, your perspective is your peer group. So you might be overweight or obese, but if you're the smallest within your peer group, you don't see it that way. Um, so I think there's those similar issues. I think the South has a few unique challenges, more so than in Wisconsin, though there's challenges everywhere, is, is the poverty in the South, particularly the rural South. You know, yes, it's overall about 40% in North Carolina, but there's pockets in rural North Carolina where it's, it's approaching 80, 90%. Um, and, and that tends to be, unfortunately, in our more socioeconomically challenged populations.
0: We've been throwing around the the words overweight and obese. And I'm wondering uh, if we could take a step back and kind of get the,
1: I guess, the clinical definition? Or how is that measured exactly? So it's a little bit different in children than it is in adults. So in children, um, for those folks who have kids, you know, they have the growth curves. Your child is X percentage in height, X percentage in weight, um, and you follow your child's growth. And then, you know, at the age of two, your pediatrician can estimate how tall your son will be, you know, when they reach adulthood. And everybody's like, I hope they're six feet tall or whatever because they're a three-foot year old. So those same growth curves are used in children. Um, so if your child is on the 99th percentile for weight compared to height, that's considered obese for a child. And then 110, 120 sorry, is type 2 obesity and 140 is, is the class 3 obesity. For adults, it's a little bit different. It's based on what's called BMI, which is a formula that puts weight over height. Mm -hmm. Um, And mathematically, overweight is anyone who has a BMI of 25 to 29.9. Obese class 1 is greater than 30. Obese class 2 is greater than 35. Obese class 3 is greater than 40.
0: So BMI stands for body mass index? It does. Okay. Um, Is that a perfect tool for
1: measuring? It's a perfect tool for measuring BMI. Now, (laughs) it's not a perfect tool if you want to look at um, what BMI might mean for any individual. One of the analogies I used is if you look at the running backs in the NFL, if you strictly went by BMI, most of them would actually qualify as obese because for their height, their weight is significant, but that weight is muscle mass. Mm -hmm. It's a very different distribution than if you took someone who did not have that muscle mass. Clearly you have someone who's very fit and not fat, versus you have someone who's probably not fit and quite fat. So BMI is not perfect. In addition, even if you took, let's say, take the elite athlete out of this and you just took heavy folks, the distribution of that weight can make a big difference. So it's much more prominent in women, though it can happen in men. You know, people talk about women who are pairs. So tiny waist, bigger hips, versus folks that are apples, meaning they kind of carry their distribution more centrally. So weight-to-hip ratio makes a big difference in terms of cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Women who have a weight-hip ratio that's greater, meaning their hips and their waists are more aligned, Mm -hmm. they tend to have worse outcomes than women who tend to have more narrow waists and bigger hips. So even if they have the same BMI, that weight distribution changes things significantly.
0: So you um, talked a lot in your talk as well about specifically women's cancers, that's your area of specialty, Um, what got you interested in the intersection of women's health and obesity?
1: Yeah, so um, because you just see it every day. Um, 40 to 50 percent of my endometrial cancer patients are overweight or obese, and you start thinking about, you know, the challenges you face as a physician taking care of them, but then as you deal with them from a survivorship perspective and you follow them for five years, it's not the cancer that's affecting their everyday life it's their obesity they're now type 2 diabetic they're now on their second blood pressure medication they're asking you for a referral for an orthopedic surgeon to fix their knee and you wonder if if I had if we because it takes a team I can't do it she has to do it with me if we could have impacted her weight over those five years could she maybe not be a diabetic? Could she maybe have saved her knee? You know, it, it's, it's hard, um, but I think it's, it's in your face. It's what you see every day. So then it's, you know, okay. Right, well, for a lot of these women, surviving their cancer is a given. You know, many of these heavy women are going to have an early. Now, many heavy women have aggressive cancers and they don't survive their cancer, but a large percentage of, of the women are going to have early cancers. They do survive their cancer. So is this a moment, you know, people have said, you know, is this a teachable moment? Can we really say, okay, you have a cancer. We, have, we can't go back. You might have this might have contributed to you developing the cancer, but let's move forward. If you lose weight, could we impact the risk of the cancer coming back? Maybe, maybe not. Moving forward, if you lose weight, can we impact your quality of life with regards to these other things such as heart disease, diabetes, enjoying quality of life? There's been a lot of studies looking at quality of life in the obese person, and obese folks even though they say i feel fine actually when you ask specific questions have a lower quality of life based on a lot of other metrics so can we improve that with interventions and you know what I tell patients is I don't know if it's going to make a difference. We know what will happen if we don't do something. We don't know what will happen if we do. Um, and you just have to have an open conversation. I think taking the discussion of weight and, and not making it about a failure on the patient's perspective, I, I treat it like a vital sign. And I tell the patient, if I, you had high blood pressure and I didn't tell you I wouldn't be a good doctor, here I'm telling you you have a high BMI. This is what it means. I'm being your doctor. We have to discuss it. You know, I can't give you a blood pressure pill that'll work tomorrow, but we can give you a treatment. It's going to take more than taking a pill, but we can offer you a treatment, a plan that we can then try to make a difference. Empowering your patient, I think, is very important. It sounds like you have a level of comfort then addressing um, weight issues,
0: overweight and obese issues with your patients. Uh, Overall, do you think this is a topic that doctors are
1: comfortable bringing up with their patients? I think it's a topic folks are, are comfortable with. Surveys have shown that physicians are comfortable bringing it up. It's interesting. There was a, a, a survey done in, in a GYN oncology population, and people were comfortable. Interestingly, the younger the population was, the more comfortable they were, probably because it's just become more prevalent versus the older population. In that particular survey, female providers were more comfortable addressing it with their patients and male providers which I find to be interesting as well. Um, so folks are, are, are comfortable bringing up the topic where are, where the challenge or the rub or the rubber meets the road, whatever analogy you want to use, where it becomes difficult is knowing what to do. And do we have the, the resources or the knowledge to be able to refer someone to someone who could help them? Do we have a bariatric surgery program? Do we have a nutritionist? Do we have a weight loss program? What are the resources that we have? And then on top of that, do the patients have the financial resources, the insurance coverage to be able to access those things? And then the other challenge is time. Having that conversation it takes time. And with all of the pressures we have in terms of our clinics and time and productivity, it, it really becomes a challenge. Um, but you just have to make the time. So you
0: also just mentioned, do we have the resources and the people to refer them to? Um, and it makes me think it's it's not an issue that really one physician can catch all of. It's it kind of needs to be a coordinated aspect of care, I guess. So you are a gyn oncologist and you work on a very particular, you know, with particular patients on particular issues. Um, but they have other doctors, right? And so how how can that whole team work together to, I guess, send sort of a unified message and make sure that The supports
1: are available uh, throughout the patient's care? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, some things lend themselves very well to multidisciplinary care. So as a G1 oncologist referring a patient to a radiation oncologist for radiation, that works very well. I think when it comes to kind of referring the patient back to their primary gynecologist to share and co-manage them um, versus their primary physician. It becomes a little bit more challenging, particularly for those patients who come a fair distance away to access quaternary care versus their primary care physician is four hours away. Um, I do think in some regards, the electronic health record has helped with that, regardless of which one you choose. As long as they can you can communicate in that platform, it can be very helpful. Um, but that is, you. I mean, you are getting to one of the huge barriers of, of this is coordination of that care. And while I might identify it as a problem and talk to the patient about her need to do it, you know, do I feel comfortable necessarily prescribing the weight loss medications and monitoring the side effects? Even if I felt comfortable, I don't have the bandwidth in my practice to monitor those things and see the patient back at that frequency you need to work with their primary care physician for that. One of the nice things is if you are and do have the ability or and your patient has the ability to get back to particularly a, a larger center, academic or not, is you know the bariatric programs really do have those resources in terms of psychological resources, nutritionists, counseling, because just because you refer them to the bariatrics program doesn't mean they get bariatric surgery. There's steps that have to occur before the surgery happens. So if you have access to those programs, that it would be a, one, a nice one-stop shop. Um, provided your patient can get there.
0: I want to ask a little bit more about um, the cancer risk. You pretty much stated, uh, very point-blankish, that um, uh, overweight and obesity can increase your cancer risk. Um, So I think you said 13 different cancers, Mm -hmm. that there's kind of a a proven link. And I guess my question is why... Mm -hmm. How does that, in in the simplest terms for someone like me who doesn't totally understand um, the
1: biomechanics of how this even happens, why? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's about 13 cancers, like you mentioned. They're all very different. I mean, some have links, postmenopausal breast cancer and endometrial cancer. They can be linked. You think about estrogen excess. So if we can take, you know, kind of that that simple little group. um, So these are both estrogen-driven tumors, both postmenopausal. Most of those are estrogen receptor positive as well as endometrial cancer. Um, It can happen because in our fatty tissues, you convert other hormones into a weak estrogen called estrone. So there's an enzyme called aromatase that helps with that conversion. The more fatty tissue you have, the more aromatase you have. So the more kind of internal estrogen your body has and there isn't a, a checks and balances. You just have this excess estrogen. It's very similar to why overweight men can develop breasts. That's a weak estrogen in men as well. So you take androstenedione and convert it to estrone in the fatty tissues. So the more fatty tissues, the more estrogen, essentially. So that's one mechanism. But then there's a lot of other factors, and and these factors may or may not play a role in the other cancers. But, you know, you increase other growth factors within the fatty tissues. Um, You can have more insulin because you develop insulin resistance. And so we know that insulin is a growth factor for some cancers. So whether that insulin resistance and increased insulin that's circulating can be kind of a progenitor for cancer development, that's a possibility. Um, There's other what's called adipokines, which are other hormones, leptin um, being one of them and, and adiponectin being another, and an imbalance between leptin and adiponectin can increase the risk of some cancers. And then once you develop the cancer, there becomes kind of a feedback loop. Um, so it's sort of adding fuel to the fire. You have this little fire of cancer. Well, the, the heat from that cancer affects the fatty cells. Those fatty cells then undergo changes that cause them to release other factors Then, sort of like adding kindling to your fire. And it really just kind of creates a, a, a bigger cancer cell and maybe a more resistant cancer cell that has some other mechanisms for survival.
0: When you are um, treating patients, especially for endo- endometrial cancer was the, the cancer for women that you said um, has a, a very tight link um, to overweight and obesity, um, how does it impact their recovery?
1: So in terms of post-treatment recovery? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, technology has been a, a great asset to us in terms of, you know, if, if someone who is heavy has endometrial cancer and you've recommended surgery, some of the minimally invasive techniques that we have now have really changed things significantly, not only for us in terms of the ease of the procedures, um, but for our patients as well in terms of decreased complications um, from the procedure. So minimally invasive surgery really hit at the right time with this growing obesity epidemic. So before patients would be in the hospital five to seven days, increased risk of blood clots, pneumonias, others, infections, They would have wound complications. We're not seeing as much of that anymore with the minimally invasive surgery. They're up, they're walking around sooner, fewer blood clots, less blood loss, fewer wound complications. Um, So that really has changed things. No question, uh, kind of healthier in, healthier out. To some extent, so you know, the healthier someone is coming into surgery, the healthier they'll be coming out. So, you know, if we have a little bit of time, knowing that from diagnosis to treatment, we don't want that to be more than four to six weeks for endometrial cancer patients. If we have a little bit of time, what can we do to maximize their ability to recover from surgery? Not that people can lose a large amount of weight in that time, but maybe making sure they get up and walk around four times a day. You know, just things like that to to get them as healthy as as they can be. When it comes to some of the other aspects of treatment, such as radiation, I do think we have a few challenges with regards to our very heavy patients in terms of the the weight of the patient versus the capabilities of the radiation suites and, and how much weight the tables can manage. Um, Some of the issues of imaging in the heavy patients, delivering dose in the heavier patients. Again, technology has helped us here with the advances in technology. We're able to minimize some of those. And, And so over time, you know, we talked about previously obesity was linked with a poor outcome. And some of the older studies, some of the newer studies have not shown that. But I wonder if technology has helped us you know, make that barrier less of a reality, which is a good thing. It doesn't take away the fact that we need to impact obesity. Um, I haven't noticed a a large difference in chemotherapy recovery um, between our obese and non-obese patients. Chemotherapy is hard for everybody. Are there other
0: um, other ways that obesity impacts women's health beyond just uh, increased cancer
1: risks? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you look at all cause mortality, is higher. So, um, so all cause mortality is higher in the obese population, heart disease, diabetes, other things. Um, so, I think for anybody in women's health, anybody in health care in general, that needs to be a focus. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of the women's health specifically to an OBGYN, you know, I think it's all aspects, even from a young woman in terms of preconception planning. Um, you know, there's Pregnancies are more complicated in the obese woman. Increased risk of gestational diabetes, more complications with regards to labor and delivery potentially, larger babies. Um, all of those things can be barriers. Um, I think contraception counseling can be different, and and your very heavy patients, um, you know. Uh, Can you get an IUD in someone who's very heavy if they want to use an intrauterine device? Are there technical and physical barriers to being able to offer everything for all of your patients? Um, Infertility um, in terms of the very obese woman. Um, Non-obese women can have infertility. It can be different mechanisms, but... um, Women who are very obese don't cycle normally, and that can lead to infertility. And then kind of throughout their reproductive life, it can lead to issues. And then ultimately as they get older, the increase in cancer risks. We are seeing more and more endometrial cancers in young women who haven't had the opportunity to have families yet. So that requires a lot of coordination of care between us as G1 oncologists, treating them with non-surgical options, trying to maintain fertility as an option. And then ultimately, then going to infertility physicians to get pregnant as quick as possible and then leading to issues with labor and delivery. So it really is a lifelong, and at what point can we make an impact because all of those things are physically difficult for the patient but also financially difficult.
0: So you mentioned something I'm just curious about. What does endometrial cancer treatment usually look
1: like? And how can that impact fertility for a younger woman? So for um, a woman who has endometrial cancer, and let's say she's 35 and hasn't had the opportunity to have her family, you know, we counseled standard of care would be a hysterectomy. If she says, no, I I just got married, I want a baby, then we talk about non-surgical ways. And so that typically involves hormones for treatment of their cancer, and that can either be oral medications, or more recently we've switched to progesterone or levonogestrel, um, releasing intrauterine devices. So the oral medications work, they're very effective. You have issues with the compliance. They don't make you feel good. In addition, we're asking these patients to lose weight, yet we're giving them a medication that causes weight gain. It's not really fair um, to her asking her to lose weight, and now, now I'm stimulating your appetite. Um, that doesn't work so well. So the levonorgestrel or any kind of progesterone-releasing IUD can be very helpful because it's a local effect. Does it doesn't cause the systemic effects of weight gain um, and mood disturbances and everything else that the oral medications can deliver. There's a local treatment to a cancer that's local. Now that's really, you know, you have to follow a series of steps. You have to get an MRI to make sure that there isn't a significant invasion of the cancer through the muscle. Those patients, it may not be safe for them to undergo fertility sparing treatment options. And then you have to follow them carefully. You know, these, these women typically will have a, a biopsy of the lining of the uterus every three months, and we give them up to a year to clear. Um, their cancer. And then if they clear, then it's working towards what are your goals at this point? Are you ready to get pregnant? You know, what are we going to do? Interestingly, really a minority of women who choose that to maintain fertility options actually make an attempt to get pregnant. Um, About a third actually will make an attempt to get pregnant. Um, And then I think you get into the barriers of, well, they have infertility for other reasons and can they afford infertility treatments? Or did they say, you know, as I thought about this over the past year and weighed, you know, what I want in life, maybe that isn't the priority I thought it was, or, you know, people change their minds.
0: Interesting.
1: So the AMA, the American Medical Association, uh, declared obesity
0: a disease officially in 2013. And since that kind of effectively pathologizes it. It's it's classified as a disease now. It's classified as a pathology. There is some concern among patients and among um, advocates that doctors might consider issues or symptoms as a side effect to obesity, whether they're necessarily related or not. So I'm curious, how can doctors make sure that um, when they're seeing a patient who is obese or overweight, they're seeing the whole patient and not um, getting stuck on one aspect of their health or letting the... Uh, overweight issue um,
1: cloud their judgment about what might actually be happening for the
0: patient? Yeah.
1: So yet yeah, the AMA in 2013, as you said, came up with this. And that was sort of on the heels of the Institute of Medicine in 2012, saying that, wait, we have a problem here. Um, this is an epidemic. Um, so no, it is a very, your question is very valid. Um, it does create a stigma. Um, and there's no question that in our heavy patients, there's many things that the diagnoses are probably delayed because of um, people saying it's because you're fat, it's because you're obese, it's your fault. I mean, there is that stigma. You know, even in in our own practice, we we see women who have a delay in diagnosis of their cancer because nobody was willing to do a pelvic exam on a very heavy woman. Um, They didn't feel comfortable, they didn't have the right speculums, you know, and it really is a travesty of the system, but it it does create a barrier. Um, I think, you know, I, I can understand from a patient's perspective, but I think that's the same way I, I treat someone who tells me that they drink too much or they use drugs or they smoke or they're abused. You just got to give me the information. I can't help you if I don't know. Um, and you kind of manage it in a non judgmental way. And, you know, I, you bring it up just the same way I would say you have high blood pressure, maybe not at the first meeting, it sort of depends on why they're coming to see you. No question, when a woman comes in with a new cancer diagnosis, her obesity is not what we talk about at that first visit. At her first visit, we're talking about this is your cancer, this is what we have, these are your options, we need to move forward taking care of you. It's usually the second or third visit, You know, so not even the post-op visit. There we're talking about PATH, making sure she's okay, it's that subsequent post-treatment whether she needed radiation or chemo or whatever, that we start, okay, we're done. You know, this is our, your new normal. Now we have to move forward. And how can we move forward to make you as healthy as you can be, help you recover from the side effects of treatment, et cetera. So I do think it involves a longitudinal relationship with the patient. And it gets to your question earlier about, as a system, how do we do this with primary care physicians and, and the whole team? I do think it takes trust. As it does, you know, if a woman's going to share with you that she's in an abusive relationship, that's rarely the first visit. Um, it's something that over time develops. And so I, I think the I think the continuity of care is critical to having the conversation as well as being successful moving forward and, and implementing some changes for, for her and potentially her whole family. Um, we have a, a, a study looking at that very issue that if you... Um, Speak with your patient and then bring in one other female somebody. It doesn't have to be a daughter or a sister. It could be a friend. Whomever the patient identifies who is also overweight, and you bring them in together and you do the counseling as a group, can that actually lead to more effective? Because, they, you know, it's sort of like a, the Weight Watchers. You're held accountable, but in a very small scale. That becomes your network there. Um, and then they can take that home with them. So that's one of the other issues. In, in more rural communities, you don't have a Weight Watchers. You may not have some of the resources, but you've identified this person as your support person. Theoretically, they're in your community. that can make that happen. But no question. I think also patients probably don't bring it up with us because they're afraid of the the stigma and the blame that comes along with it as any kind of of condition that might be seen as somewhat an addiction would be difficult to bring up. Is there anything else you want, um, you
0: think is important for people to know, especially about
1: the intersection of obesity and women's health? So the only other thought I have regarding you know all of the visit or or the weight being seen as a priority for the conversation, I think it has a role. But as the provider, you can't forget that you also have to address the other parts of their care. You know, are they up to date on all the other recommended screenings, the vaccinations? Um, have they had their Pap smear of its time, their mammogram? Implementing, you know, what new family history has come into play since you last saw them. Um, and while. Obesity is important, you know, just moving. Are they moving around? Are they walking? You know, both the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society have some guidelines regarding exercise. Um, It doesn't have to be in a Peloton rigorous fashion. Even walking is, you know, really important. And if they can't walk 10,000 steps, that's fine. Start with five. And every month, increase by a little bit every single month. If you can't even do 10,000, walk five minutes two times a day, even if it's in your house. And then just increase that every day most people in the US have some type of cell phone um, it's almost ubiquitous um, and most cell phones have step trackers and if you don't have a cell phone and it doesn't have or it doesn't have a step tracker because you have a flip phone you can buy a step tracker for less than five dollars any place and you just clip on your waist and that'll help you monitor um, your step so you know in many ways moving can be as effective at getting healthy as losing weight. And there is data to suggest that moving can also decrease your cancer risk, and it doesn't have to be necessarily associated with weight loss. And that's been shown for colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, and endometrial cancer. So um, I think, you know, adding and helping them do something that should be fairly straightforward. Um, If someone's in, you know, so heavy that they really can't walk much, you know, they can sit in their chair and, and do Pilates. Um, they can get a can of beans and do arm lifts or chair lifts. There's a lot of different things that they can do to help move. And then as they can do more, hopefully that'll motivate them to keep improving.
0: Dr. Garrig, thank you so much for sitting down with the Women's Health Cast. I really appreciate your time today. It's
1: my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Women's Health Cast is a production of the University of Wisconsin Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISC, Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.